Welcome to the founders of Web3 series by Outlier Ventures and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're going to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're going to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. So welcome to the Web3 podcast. Today, I've got Ilya, co-founder of Near Protocol. Uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce his surname, at least he told me not to. So Ilya, <laughs> I will let you introduce yourself by name. I'm Ilya Polosuhin. And uh, your other co-founder is Alexander Skidanov. That was easier, right? Yes. Did I get that right? <laughs> okay. So I've been following you guys uh, for some time now, I think, when we met in Shanghai, back when it was fashionable to be you know, flying in and out of, of China um, every few weeks. I think we actually met at a Binance party on a, on a, on a rooftop. And, and since then, I've been following your progress because the way that you described Near Protocol and your approach, at least from what I can remember, because I would have definitely had a few beers by that point, <laughs> um, it, it definitely struck me that you you had a very pragmatic approach to to realizing this stack it was very iterative and very very open in terms of uh, your development cycles with the community um so hopefully we can we can talk about that a little bit later and and i guess that should be no surprise because you you really pride yourselves on the developer friendliness of of your product but before we, before we go into that, it would be good to just understand uh, a little bit more about your background by way of summary. So I guess the most the standout thing that I could see was your work at Google, um, at Google Research, uh, where you worked on um, Machine Translate with Google Translate, and you're one of the main contributors to TensorFlow. I can also see that with your founder, Alexander, and um, some of your kind of key development team, Mikhail and Evgeny, you were all ICPC champions and medalists, which I've, I've never really seen in a, in a Web3 or a, a blockchain team. Could you explain uh, a little bit more about your background, the work that you were doing uh, at Google, and, and perhaps some of the stuff that you think carries forward and is relevant to, to what you're doing uh, now at Near? Sure, yeah. Um, so my work at Google pretty much surrounded a lot around natural language, and I always was fascinated by evolution of machine learning specifically for language, because in a way, that's how we communicate, it's how we transfer knowledge. Um, so really worked a lot on question answering, some of the kind of questions, like if you ask someone, google.com are answered by our models. Uh, Google Translate uh, worked on the kind of models that like was a precursor of what powers right now. So it's a new AI on Google Translate. And uh, obviously when TensorFlow was kind of starting off and becoming popular inside Google, like my team and jumped on it and we like started actually contributing back as like external team to the original TensorFlow uh, folks. And then over time, actually I led a part of the development uh, for actually developer-friendly part of the TensorFlow. So uh, then me and uh, my co-founder 
like as I left Google, we started an AI company and uh, we were actually trying to teach machines to program. Uh, we were trying to figure out how can a non-engineer or maybe an engineer uh, who wants to be faster be able to describe to computer something in English and that would produce a uh, pretty much working code. Now, it's a very like challenging problem. People have been working for it since like 60s, but we thought we had an approach which actually was rooted into our competitive programming background. So like for the context- The ICPC champions and medalists. Yeah. Yeah, so this ICPC thing is a kind of international program where uh, starting from universities and then going to like district, region, nation, nation and then world uh, is a competition like sport where in five hours you need to solve very challenging kind of computer science problems. And pretty much you actually practice for it like for any sport, right? You actually sit down and, you know, uh, do a five hour sprint of solving these hard problems. You know? And the point, the only point is, is like a computer on the other side that uh, judges how good you are. And uh, so, yeah, so I was actually like a national level, my co-founder Alex uh, won gold medal. And so we have a pretty good kind of connections in the space. And we actually use that connections to start getting data for, for the kind of teaching computers how to code. Because in a way, this is how we learn how to program in the first place by like solving a lot of, you know, first simpler and then kind of progressing to hard problems. And this is actually where kind of blockchain crept into it because we built a something of a like data collection platform where a we would contract people in uh, Russia and Poland and China to uh, solve problems for us, like go from natural language to code, go from the code to natural language to really generate more data for us. And it actually was a pretty hard problem to pay them because like China, you know, doesn't accept like anything. Uh, Russia has its own restrictions. So, and on, on the other side, like we actually were building something of an open data set. We really wanted to collaborate with more projects. We worked with Berkeley, or actually with Don Song a little bit there. And uh, we wanted to kind of create a, a open platform on the other side where people can, you know, create tasks on this platform. So blockchain seemed like a very kind of, reasonable infrastructure to build such an application, such a marketplace. But as we looked into it and kind of really dug deep, our realization was that there's like kind of a lot of missing pieces kind of across the stack that really like makes like usable, you know, developer platform. So my, my co-founder, Alex, he actually, his background is actually from building a sharded database called Mansible and, you know, I mostly been doing machine learning, but obviously like at Google, you kind of get a pretty good practice in building distributed systems as, you know, like even, even some of the machine learning systems we built were, you know, ran like across like hundreds and thousands of machines. So we started to just like really digging deeper into kind of blockchain, trying to figure out where, where's the limitations coming from and what we can do. And um, what is the awareness within Google or should I say interest? within Google formally about blockchain? Because we never really hear much externally, but clearly experiments must be carried out or there's a kind of general uh, awareness of, of the technology domain. People like to make this very clear distinction between um, what sits in Web 2, where presumably you know, Google is the antithesis of that, 
versus <laughs> this new paradigm, which is which is Web three. But it's interesting because when you talk about Nia, you talk about a developer platform for an open web, and I guess you could argue that there's a lot about Google that is very open. Yeah, so open web actually a term that comes from Google and uh, Mozilla and a few other uh, kind of industry leaders back in. I'm 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 trying not to uh, mess it up, but it's definitely more than ten years. It's way before Bitcoin. It's way before. Uh, and it actually was more rooted around like closed technologies like flat, Adobe, flat, Adobe Flash being a closed technology that was, you know, driving web back then. And like HTML5 was supposed to be this open web kind of concept uh, that really was trying to rally around developers to build something on open technologies. So, and that, this is actually why uh, we like open web as, as a term because it actually kind of showcases that this problem being like it's ex- have been existing have been existed for a while now, and it just kind of changes its shape. It went from being a front-end problem, right, something that is on a, you know, on a user side to be more of like back-end problem, like where is the cloud, where is the data, who is running servers, like what services are powered and who is controlling them. And so, I mean, I really like the idea that you are directly, there's a continuum almost, right? So a lot of people, in the Web3 space, or who would identify being part of the Web3 space, really feel something other. And also they they often feel or think that they're working on new problems um, or have new perspectives. And, and often um, that might just be down to youth, but I think um, with any basic history in uh, information technologies, a, a lot of these themes are kind of recurring as bundling and unbundling of technology. So, I mean, do you see, do, do you believe in the distinction of Web3 or do you think it's a bit of a misnomer? Uh, I actually don't like, like, I don't fully like Web3 because it's actually, I think like Web2 had had a ring to it because like people knew this like 2.0 thing as like, oh, it's like better. But like Web3, I don't think it actually rings with like outside of, you know, uh, kind of this crypto space people. Uh, and that's why we've been try- we've been actually like trying to see what what is a better both what is a better term but also what is a better concept that people are more excited about right because like I don't think like decentralization for example on its own is you know a like a thing to target right like it's it's a means to serve some problems to solve some problems but it's not the that's exactly yeah. where. Yeah, it's not a destination. So, like, the question is, like, what is a destination we can get using this as a vehicle, right? And, I mean, there's, like, a lot of interesting kind of things that are coming out, right? Uh, which is, like, this concept of, well, obviously, like, something that's not permissioned, right? Something that's not controlled by, and we, you know, we know the stories for, like, Google. We know the stories for Microsoft. We know the stories for Apple, where they would, you know, bump somebody from their Apple, uh, from their store, or uh, like kick out somebody from their cloud, you know, log their like mission critical application because you know some uh, some other thing happened. But at the same time, obviously we have like clear you know regulatory kind of where you know different geographies right now have different regulatory uh, regimes and actually right now uh, like at Google for example for YouTube. They have an extremely complex system to maintain all their regulatory compliance for all the videos in YouTube. 
it's like it's huge team working on tooling and a huge set of PMs and then a huge set of like lawyers and it's all like to operate within regulatory of each country of each like state and whatever and like we actually you know part of it is like actually making cheaper some of these things where you know we are kind of I mean in a way unbundling some of the stuff and making it more available but at the same time maybe moving the like who wants to watch which content from you know the government deciding it to individuals or like self-censorship or whatever right so so there's like a lot of kind of different values coming in from this uh from this ecosystem and i don't think like web3 is like hey like what we trying to get is you know no uh, like government or no, you know, corporate interests. I don't think that that's directly like resonates with end user. Like what, what does resonate with them is actually like specific uh, solutions and specific like things that we can deliver with these technologies. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that makes sense. If you look at your mission, your mission is to effectively onboard the 99% plus developers that don't care about web three. And I guess how you, talk about what you do is just as important, right? Because there is this habit within crypto or Web3 or the decentralized space to kind of create new language, um, not programming language necessarily. But, uh, you know, <laughs> that new, is new, true too. <laughs> yeah, true, exactly. And a new, a new semantics. And obviously that, that can create barriers. Often it's quite lo- loaded language. And do you think that that experience at Google, seeing an operation, you know, software and networks and systems and products at that scale and the complexities of them being um, rolled out globally, you know, do you think that that is um, an advantage and uh, or, or a disadvantage or, or a bit of both, right? Because I know, you know, some people who are perhaps a bit more dogmatic about what they think their vision of Web3 is would would argue very strongly that there shouldn't be there shouldn't be any in between. But it sounds like uh, if, if I kind of stick to the analogy of Web two and Web three, what you're what you're really proposing is almost like a Web two point five. It's an evolution <laughs> of the web, um, but that is an evolution that is at the pace that developers can can use, deploy, and build products at scale. Well, I mean, what we've built is actually like it provides you a infrastructure for anything. Like you can plug in, you know, a, our identity system into your Web2 application and be happy. Or, uh, you know, you can build a fully decentralized, like, you know, like smart contract, which can, you know, custody assets and will be resistant to, you know, government attacks, right? Like we actually like on, on the kind of developer platform itself, we don't target like this in between. We actually have the full spectrum. It's more of a question like how do what is the language we can indeed use to bring more developers like to actually excite them with you know these technologies right because like I mean and this is like you actually asked this question like how do Google how do people like engineers at Google think of blockchain most of them actually think it's a scam right like uh, it's still like the 2017 kind of where you know anybody could like write a white paper, you know, take a template of white paper, submit it and raise money, kind of still looms over it. I mean, I think like it, it's reduced, but same as just generally like blockchain and news reduced. <laughs> so people just don't think about it as much. 
but yeah. like real realistically people are still not there with like understanding what is the values that they are getting by using these technologies and we kind of need to like clearly you know provide it there and gives them like gives them nuggets of value to you know lure them in in a way to like more interesting applications which are you know may, maybe getting closer to what sounds like that's three kind of more dogmatic web three uh, people uh, think will look like. But I also like, I, I think realistically, you know, we cannot like destroy the old, you know, financial system. Even it's, even if it's trying to do it itself right now, yeah, I mean, the thing is like, it will stay there. And like, I actually, I just did a talk on this at the non-con and like realistically, even though the, you know, there's a lot of like huge global economic crisis is, you know, going to happen and like happening right now like it's still like tremendously bigger than all of the crypto right now and uh like all of the crypto right now is really really just btc to usdt uh <laughs> trading like yeah. out, uh, in and out right uh so so like re realistically like before before we get to the state where where like everything is operated by decentralized or like some some even a hybrid of centralized finance, like we'll need to coexist together and like build bridges between, you know, uh, kind of the centralized and decentralized finance, centralized and decentralized applications, centralized and decentralized identity, and like how exactly you do it and how exactly you connect developers to it, like really matters how, you know, how much adoption we'll get in the coming years. So it's really interesting that, you know, when you talk about at least some people within Google who you could regard as the elite of the software engineering world, that it is almost a dirty word to be working on anything associated to blockchain because of its, uh, because of the ICO phenomena and, and crypto more generally, the kind of speculative element. And I, and I think that, you know, if, if we look at the thing that's putting off a lot of developers, when I speak to them as I've traveled around, it is it is sometimes embarrassing when they ask you know what are you investing in especially i would imagine in the circles the icpc circles which are even more kind of this elite community that it's it's, it's kind of by association you don't really want to say that you're, you're working in this domain so it, it makes total sense that in your mission to kind of onboard these developers that you're taking much more of a, a pragmatic approach or i guess more of an agnostic approach right so as you say, you're providing a spectrum of technology. You don't really care where somebody wants to sit on that spectrum. Your role is to just kind of provide the toolkit that enables that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like there's kind of few dimensions in this. There's like when we're talking with developers, right, you can definitely lure in developers with the technical problems and technical kind of interesting nuggets that blockchain has, right? I mean, the, the reason why we have a, such a strong team of, you know, of ICPC kind of uh, winners and, and finalists is because like there's a lot of interesting technical problems of building blockchain and building on top of blockchain uh, to be solved. And that's kind of originally what lured us in as well, where, you know, when we looked at it and we're like, wait, but like we can do better, right? <laughs> in a way, like trying to figure out how to solve these problems. But then kind of flipping this on, on kind of to the other side of this question is really yeah i think like there is different 
like needs for different engineers, right? Like some people, you know, just coming into and like they have a project they need to do, they just need to pick the kind of technology to use. And like they, they don't have a goal of, you know, building a, you know, self-sufficient application that will live forever, right? Like that's not everybody, like that's not everybody's job in the world to, to build such applications. A lot of people, you know, building an e-commerce website, like for e-commerce website, I mean, there's clearly somebody like actually serving products, right? It's not like, it's not going to be like self, you know, self-running uh, application. So like autonomous application. So, so like you do need kind of a variety of things and a variety of tools for different people. And like, we actually, uh, like the way we think of it is kind of a stack even where at the, like, you know, obviously at, at the bottom, at the bottom of the stack, you have the blockchain is like kind of, uh, like lowest in like infrastructure incentive structure, you know, finance fabric, uh, that, pro that provides like underlying stuff. Then you have this, like we call them reusable components, right? It is this kind of independent libraries and, uh, kind of, kind of like microservices, but they're, you know, self, uh, self-operating and maybe like governed by a community. But then on top of it, you actually have user facing applications. And realistically, most of user-facing applications will be run by some entity or people, right? Uh, so not like you cannot have like really high-quality applications which are not you know overseen by some like product vision, and so they can still be and they can rooted be rooted in this reusable components. Uh, like example, I like is imagine me right now wanting to build Airbnb. Well, what is Airbnb? In reality, it's kind of a composition of few components. One is a marketplace of the uh, like listing marketplace, right? It's an insurance and it's a service on top of this, right? So if I want to build an Airbnb company, uh, what I want to do is like have a permissionless listing, which means I actually have a, uh, sounds like kind of regulatory arbitrage coming in here. And I also can bootstrap it by, you know, integrating this marketplace in other places. Uh, I can actually use an existing, like a reusable component of insurance, which, you know, covers some of the risks that, you know, people will destroy the house. And then what I just need to do is kind of link it all together, provide the best user experience people, you know, uh, can have bootstrap this listing set and, you know, provide some kind of connection to the, uh, you know, somebody to call to and, and the service, right? So like my costs on like actually building this will be way and operating this will be way lower. And I also kind of reduced a lot of like regulatory uncertainty that this may have, uh, which like Airbnb needed to deal with, uh, for like last you know how many years so you were talking earlier about this reusability and i know you have the ability to provide or pay distribute royalties associated to smart contracts that are used do you so on the one hand you have the stack is it fair to say that you're then trying to build a marketplace around that of these microservices and that is the first step then towards there being dApps because when people think about adoption at the moment they're primarily thinking about you know billions millions billions of users tomorrow using a dap and is it that you believe that there needs to be something that first onboards all these developers and, and then this marketplace of microservices will emerge on top there's, there's phases to mass adoption of these underlying technologies yeah at least that's kind of our assumption that obviously we're testing and i mean I don't, I don't think anybody has like a clear answer to any of this. <laughs> Otherwise we would already solve this problem of mass adoption. But like our assumption is that you kind of first need to attract developers who 
first, you know, we'll be able to tinker, we'll be able to build some interesting applications, but also we'll be able to build something that, you know, makes them a living or uh, kind of allows them to create companies around. And then from there, uh, if you have this uh, kind of, you know, hundreds and thousands of applications being built, then some of them, you know, will actually capture use cases, which are, uh, you know, as novel or solving something in, in a like, you know, better, faster, cheaper way. Uh, and actually bring more users, right? Like, I don't think like, uh, you know, throwing a dart like in the dark and saying like, oh, this is this is the application that will like attract, you know, millions of users. Like maybe there's, uh, you know, like, I mean, people have been doing this, but like we, we've seen that haven't yet like realized into anything. So, so far, like what have worked before for all of the developer platforms of the past is actually this kind of a platform and like working through developers, right? Like Windows as a developer platform is an example. Uh, obviously like Office being like one of the products that like had huge success, but having like, you know, an open platform and being able for people to, for like millions of developers actually make a living out of building applications uh, had a huge kind of impact on people using Windows and Office actually as well. And same for, you know, Apple, uh, same for like platforms like Parse, uh, Firebase, et cetera. So what are the qualities or characteristics that a, a developer that's not interested in decentralization per se, why is it that they come and use Near protocol? What, it, what is it that they can't currently get from, let's just call it the Web2 stack for now? So, I mean, there's kind of few things that like we are way easier, right, on on this like more like on the platform, which has, let's say, blockchain kind of underneath, right? Uh, first of all, anything that like does deal with money or, or like valuable assets is way easier to do. Like if you, if you imagine like building right now a uh, application that needs to do insurance or, you know, borrowing, or uh, if you want to do like even just like payroll, like the amount of kind of work you need, the amount of licensing, the amount of uh, kind of cybersecurity you need to unroll is like, Tremendous, and then you need to add GDPR uh, or like HIPAA for you know uh, California now. So like it's just like work after work after work just to kind of launch something that you know in reality can be like a thousand line smart contract uh, that like captures value and, and transfers it, and then the application itself, like the the front end and kind of user interface, uh, can just operate with this uh, with this data and with this assets in non-custodial way. Right. So, and then like this actually evolves into more things, which is like right now we like, if you think of like the requirements for data kind of control and they are huge, there's actually a lot of kind of sub use cases where people are becoming more and more cautious about giving data to these big cloud providers. Uh, the example I really like is Facebook actually not using a cloud uh, for their email and uh, uh, their file storage, right? They actually use Microsoft SharePoint that is a host on-prem because they don't trust Google, for example, with their email, right. right? And so like in reality, if we had a solution, which was like, as a company, you can actually own all your data, but still use software like as a service. Like this is actually a pretty big uh, thing for a lot of, for a lot of companies because like right now they have a huge maintenance costs on on running on-prem on -prem, uh, services 
for for all this kind of uh, like service. And I, I mean, like with all respect to Microsoft, but they're like, you know, on-prem with like Outlook is not the best piece of software. Like at like 10,000 unread emails, that thing is just like hanging. So, so it's like, interesting, so, even Web2 doesn't trust Web2. Exactly. I mean, it's like, especially when you start actually like becoming like at, you know, the, the more high risk. And that's where it's like, you know, when people say, oh, we should like move away from Facebook. I'm like, I'm all for it. I actually, like believe in my Facebook recently. But like, this is not where the pain points are. The pain points actually for, you know, data protection and privacy is around either like big companies who don't who don't trust other big companies with their data or around like GDPR protection, where if I'm a small startup, I actually don't have resources to build something that's like uh, fully compliant and like while maintaining all this data on my side, right? So it's actually easier for me to not manage data and give it away back to the users and have them their custody of their data uh, versus like building everything like super compliant setup. Like my, my, my friend who, who, who is building a company, they spend more than $10 million building a like compliant database, which like actually manages like uh, their clients' records with like full compliance. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, GDPR, I think it's a great catalyst for, uh, for Web3 in that it introduces liability. So rather than it just be a security risk and you know, perhaps a bit embarrassing, now it is a huge liability that can dramatically impact share price. And, and as you say, for, a, for an SME, actually becomes prohibitive to, to doing business. Yeah, for sure. Actually, I also know like a, a friend of my, mine sold his company to Twitter because like when GDPR came out, they just like evaluated and had no, like there was no option they could actually be compliant. So they like just decided to sell it to somebody who actually can like either pay fees or pay engineers to re rebuild the stack. Interesting. And so when we were talking earlier, you said, you know, the technology is agnostic. It, it can operate on a spectrum on multiple dimensions. It's just configurable to, I guess, the trade-offs. I mean, you, you could say it could be the, the philosophy of the developer, but it might also just be the, the particular trade-offs that they want to make for a certain use case. But but you also you also mentioned this idea about kind of leading them into um, perhaps principles that they might not currently be thinking about. So whilst it is agnostic, I mean, it, it sounds like there is, there is still, at least for, for you as an individual, I'm not sure for the wider firm, there is a mission there to, to, to try to get a better web somehow. What for you are, is non-negotiable? Are there, are there certain <laughs> things that are fundamental that you 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 wouldn't allow to be configurable uh so that's an interesting question like m my point is like I, like i don't think we need we can have like this radical change right we do need to be uh slow and like steady and actually like, give value on every step i think like for me like i i am looking forward to to the world where you know we're actually shifting away from this like profit as like a fine like pro profit and st like stock price as a final thing that like is very removed from like what people are doing in a company and like this removal actually creates like like a google is like a you know huge company and most people don't actually understand directly how their work relates to the kind of what the company does 
And this creates like a lot of misalignment around like what people willing to do and what people are doing to actually like affect that thing, right? Figuring out how like, like this, you know, community owned in a way, uh, like moving it to community owned where users actually deciding, right? Uh, where the products are evolving, where's the, you know, the software is going. I think that's where I'm, I'm looking forward to that world. Like we're very, you know, very far from that right now. And this is where, like, when you're asking, like, what are we leading developers into is, is actually, like, uh, showcasing how they can start integrating some of these components into their own uh, applications and actually benefiting from them in the short term, right, where, like, the, the benefit of, you know, even, like, talking economics is the fact that you can kind of uh, bring some of the future value uh, right now to the original users, right, to the, like, first early adopters. Uh, and kind of smeared off. And obviously you need you need that like value to come in later, otherwise like that token account doesn't work. But it's you know it attracts this original community and then this original community can help shape the product and help drive it. But the point is that like long term in any like bigger company, the like this kind of loses this connection gets lost between like the you know community and shareholders and, and users like it's all kind of falls apart and like has a very different uh, connection. And like here we actually have this connection that is, you know, linked kind of through the uh, crypto and like actually figuring out how we can, you know, manifest that into like better products and uh, products that serve users better. I, I think that that's kind of my North Star. So that's super interesting in that uh, you reference the idea of crypto assets or, or tokens, how they play an important role in the participation of the network in the value that's created. I know this is a very polarizing uh, topic, <laughs> whether, whether tokens are additive to open source systems or whether they're a distraction. Could you talk through why you think they're presumably a powerful addition? Yeah, Use for sure. Right I way, think like, obviously. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, the, the core point is like, the token needs to capture value in some, in some way going forward, right? Uh, I think like most of the tokens were created kind of for the sake of it. And that's where like a lot of the polarization comes from. The, the kind of the, like my, my view on this is what like tokens provider is a way to really do a few things. One is like design an instrument that can provide the early adopters a way to capture some of the like value that's going to come in the future right and because of that they will they're interested in you know participating and growing this ecosystem kind of early on to really to you know bring some of that brings that value in the future um the kind of question really around this like open source and tokens is the fact that like the fact is like right now open source is actually supported by large companies that's that's like a real yes. real situation is like mo most of the open source is just large companies paying people to work on stuff because they use it themselves and and this you know started obviously like red hat being like a pioneer in this and then like i mean again i worked on tensorflow you know like a lot of my work ended up being open source but you know i was paid by google so the the Point here is that like that means all of this open source is really just targets whatever the kind of those goals that these big companies follow, uh, and like we can obviously like discuss like where these goals are you know good and bad, but 
uh, is definitely not always aligned with actual users of this open source projects, right? Like if, if let's imagine that like TensorFlow specifically, right? Like inside Google, when I was leaving, we had like, I don't know, maybe a thousand teams using it, right? Probably now more. But outside of Google, there's, you know, tens of thousands, if not maybe even hundreds of thousands of developers using TensorFlow. When, you know, decisions are made, how TensorFlow should be evolving, do you, like, who, whose voice do you think is heard more, right? That, that's kind of like a, a simple comparison, right? But like even more complex is like really when you think of, you know, if, if you have something that's not just a software, but actually a service, right? It's something that uh, needs to align kind of multiple parties, like it's either a marketplace of some resource, of some service, of some value. Uh, this is where like the software part is just, you know, a way to facilitate this. Like, and really you need to align the incentives of the, of the kind of entities participating. But the developer itself, you know, the person who builds this or people who built this, they're also there, right? So you kind of have this like multiple roles and maybe the people who, you know, operating on top of marketplace will have some financial system between them, but like it will definitely not flow back to developer. And uh, like, it's unclear, like without some kind of economics, right? Design, like it doesn't need to be tokens, but like it needs to be designed some way to kind of make sure that, you know, everybody like aligned on, you know, evolving this ecosystem forward. Uh, and actually like DeFi right now has like examples of like misalignment where, you know, some of the DeFi applications are built by people who are actually not getting any value out of it because a lot of DeFi applications are kind of as this community services, right? They're just, they're not really capturing value themselves. And then people complaining to developers, hey, why are you not building this feature or something? And developers like, hey, I'm not getting really paid for this, right? I built, you know, the best thing I could. And like, uh, but you're actually getting value out of it, right? So, so this is where like this missile element is actually coming in, even in like Web3 world, uh, if, if there is no like actual clear design, how this should work. So you're, you came into blockchain or you, you began looking at the problems, uh, challenges, the design challenges within within the blockchain space from a machine learning background. What do you, if you look at smart contracts at the moment, you know, they're fairly limited. I don't mean specific to NIA, just generally. They're quite limited in, in terms of what you can actually do in a smart contract. How do you feel about the potential for machine learning and, and blockchain in, in combination and, and to allow for greater complexity in smart contracts? Yeah, so, I mean, it's an interesting question that I've been obviously thinking a lot about. I think, like, I think blockchain, as I said, is, is the, the its first design is about, like, uh, kind of incentive and, and alignment and providing this, like, backbone. I think the machine learning will come in as kind of more, quote-unquote, like, la layer two. But, uh, like, I actually have some ideas how uh, this should come in. But before before, I think, like, Right now, it's still too early. Like the reality of machine learning, machine learning works when you do have users and when they have data. Uh, and right now, we don't have users, so. <laughs> so right now, it's like too. It's too. It's too early for like actually like trying to build some of these things where like where we just don't have this kind of this underlying you know uh, infrastructure yet. I think like there's some interesting kind of concepts around like you know like self evolution and like maintaining things and like how 
and applications can like li live and evolve on their own on the blockchains. But again, I think like we're still way too early for this, like even like a good prototype kind of cases for this stuff. So, I mean, I definitely follow the logic, you know, users data, then, then machine learning. Um, how do you, how do you stay disciplined as a founder in the space? Because I mean, your team are by all intents and purposes, you know, the, some of the elites of the elite, you're all incredibly bright. I'm sure there could be a number of ways you could distract yourself solving really interesting problems, but that are slightly removed from a roadmap that a user would want right now. How do you, how do you stay disciplined? Cause this is one of the things I, when I, when I speak to a lot of founders or I see a difference between those that are executing and those that aren't is it seems to be those that are most disciplined in, in, in sticking to the user and what they need right now. And um, it's an interesting question. I think like generally few things, I mean, one is kind of trying to focus on, you know, this is like, what, what is a deliverable so we can get to, you know, developers and like, through them to users and through that is like, it kind of focuses you on things that, you know, like it, it kind of removes right away things that maybe don't matter right now. Uh, like I'm, I'm actually super excited about stable coins. I think like there's a lot of value in them, but like right now, like at, at this specific moment, right for near, can we deliver something? And the, the answer is no, because, well, we need to launch our thing, right? We need developer tooling. We need this and this. So like, it kind of like builds up into this, like more, like everything that's not, currently like fully applicable, like similar as machine learning, right? Like I actually have some interesting ideas how to do federate, like Byzantine fault tolerant federated learning. Uh, but again, like, can we do it? Do we have data? Do we have users? Not yet. Okay. Let's, let's think about it later. So, so really like trying to kind of focus on like, what can we deliver in like next few months? And, uh, but also like, how, how do we make sure that people are aware of it? What, what is the messaging? What is the story that we need to tell? that actually gets people excited and uh, start trying those things. So you've got your mainnet coming up and I know you referenced there's the uh, Ready Layer One event that you're going to be very actively involved in. What are the, what are the, some of the big things that are coming up on your, on your road? Yeah, so Ready Layer One is a very exciting event because it's pretty much uh, uh, Polkadot, Cosmos, Near, Protocol uh, Labs and Tezos coming in together to really have like an obviously online event given the current state of the world, but um, kind of bring together developers, bring together like workshops, bring together people who can ideate around various things, how we can practically get things to the users, to the developers in some way that actually will specifically help alleviate some of the current problems that we're we'll facing, right? Uh, I think like that's actually one of the important things is like we are living through pretty probably like generational thing. This is, you know, this will be, you know, remembered in history like this time. And we, you know, we should be mindful of it. And like, we shouldn't, you know, like we should review our assumptions at this point and like actually think more how we can help uh, kind of people who will be hurting in, you know, next coming months. Uh, so, so I'm actually very excited about this event because like the idea is to bring probably like smartest people in the industry and, and like actually all together work on like practical things we can, uh, we can help. Um, that's probably why I didn't get an invite then. 
and then you've got, you, you, <laughs> and then you've got your you, you got mainnet coming up as well right yeah so so i think like generally uh as everyone in the industry now is like we built a relatively sophisticated and complex systems and you know it's actually very different from you know bitcoin and uh not to like simplify, but even Ethereum. And it's actually, so we kind of launching it in stages. And so we have like kind of our first stage coming out uh, soon. And then we'll like pretty much from there, we'll be releasing more and more functionality uh, into the future. So but we'll, we'll announce this kind of separately. But yeah, but we do have, uh, you know, testnet running and we invite like people, to, like developers to join. There's a full kind of development environment where you can build applications. We have smart contracts on uh, kind of TypeScript uh, and uh, Rust. We have kind of JavaScript and a few other uh, SDKs. So it actually provides you, like we have online ID, we have uh, local environment as well. So you can like build applications pretty quickly and easily. So uh, thanks so much for your time, Ilya. It's been great talking to you, hearing about your progress. Hopefully I'll get my invite to Ready Layer One so I can become part of the elite and uh, we can we can uh, at least see each other online if not in person soon. For sure, yeah. And I mean, every, everybody's invited readylayer.one to apply for tickets and talks. Great, thanks for your time. Thanks. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.